You're listening to Fueled, a Finstamaker podcast, and I'm your host, Catherine Finstamaker. William H. Finstamaker, better known as Bill Finstamaker, is chairman and chief executive officer of C.H. Finstamaker and Associates, LLC, our family's surveying, mapping, engineering, and environmental consulting company that has been conducting operations for over 70 years. He has been employed in this capacity since 1971 and is responsible for the financial and operational stability of the company headquartered in Lafayette, Louisiana, with offices in Baton Rouge, Lake Charles, Shreveport, Mandeville, and New Orleans, Louisiana, along with Houston, San Antonio, and Midland, Texas. Bill Finstemaker is not only recognized as a leader in his field, but a leader in the state of Louisiana. In addition to his role with Finstemaker, Bill was chairman of the board of Iberia Bank Corporation, a $32 billion bank holding company, which recently merged with First Horizon out of Memphis, Tennessee. Bill is a member of the World Presidents Organization, Chief Executives Organization, and the Phi Kappa Phi Honor Society. He serves on the board of the Community Foundation of Acadiana. He's on the Intergy Louisiana Advisory Board and is immediate past chairman for the Board of Trustees at Oshner Lafayette General Medical Center, the largest full-service medical facility serving the Acadiana region. Mr. Finstemaker also sits on the board and is past chairman of the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry, LABI. He is the past chairman of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette Foundation, past member of the Board of Regents for the state of Louisiana. He also serves on the advisory board of the Louisiana Geological Survey. Bill is on the board of directors and is past chairman of the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association and is a founder, past chairman, and trustee of Blueprint Louisiana. This list of key roles he has played with local nonprofit, civic, and business organizations is indicative of his commitment to our community. His honors include Business Person of the Year by Times of Acadiana in 1998, the Lafayette Civic Cup in 1999, the Boy Scouts of America Distinguished Citizen Award in 2001, and he was named Executive of the Year by Acadiana Business Magazine in 2009. He also received an honorary doctorate of science degree from the University of Louisiana Lafayette in 2003, and most recently received the Lifetime Achievement Award for his service to Lafayette General Medical Center. In addition to all of this, and most importantly, and fortunately for me, you're also my dad, and I'm so grateful that you've taken some time to sit down with me today for this episode of Fueled for Season 2, which I'm calling Seeking CHF, an attempt to better know our company's founder and origin story. So with all that said, welcome, and thank you for being here. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So you're ready to just jump into it? I'm ready and able. Okay, sounds good. So first question, you've had an incredibly long tenure here at Finstermaker, perhaps the longest of anyone, almost 51 years. In today's grass is greener culture, can you speak a bit about your spirit of commitment, loyalty, and dedication to this firm and talk about what drew you here and what's kept you here at Finstermaker? Well, I guess first off, the... Um it doesn't seem like I've been here for as long as I have at Finstermaker. It seems like uh, we just started this venture, this voyage a couple of years back. The thing that gets me excited and, and keeps me encouraged 
is the things that we do here at Finstermaker. I'm impressed with the knowledge base that we have of our employees, and that's what keeps me uh, excited about coming to work every day. For 51 years. For 51 years. And people always ask, when's he going to retire? And I say, never. (laughs) Well, people ask me that all the time. When am I going to retire? And, you know, I can't even think of a horrible existence it would be to be retired. But in truth, I always say I'd like to take maybe a couple of extra days off here or there, or I'll take an extra week off every year. And I don't do it. But if I did that, I would say that I take an extra week off. And then when you don't see me anymore, you know I'm retired. (laughs) Sounds good. So you grew up with our founder, C.H. Finstermaker Jr. as a father. Can you talk about some of his qualities that you remember, things that you observed in him as you grew up that maybe inspired you or things about him that you just noticed? C.H., Charles Finstermaker, was um, a very tough taskmaster, was very big on performing work at a very high level. He cared about the output that we put forth, and he would always be looking for anything short of perfection. He was never one to scrimp on getting equipment that was necessary to perform the task, and he was also a person who demanded a lot of his employees. And I was an employee at one time, and I can tell you that uh, when he came into the room, it was always something that you said, oh, my God, I hope I did what I was supposed to do. Because uh, if you didn't, he would let you know about it. Yeah, a stickler. He was a stickler. And he was like that all the way growing up, even before you started working here. Can you remember that? It's hard to remember that, but... I remember when he worked for Texaco, and he came in, and he started Fenstermaker Associates. And he took my bedroom and made that his office. And I remember that going out in the field and surveying on weekends and so forth. I remember that we, we did things always the right way. There were no shortcuts. And so, uh, uh, yeah, he was... Uh, a person that demanded that you do the work and you did it right. Well, I guess that's what I've heard as well from others. Was your father's military experience something that you revered? Did you see elements of that rigor, structure, and discipline that we see with the military ripple out into his and your life or the relationship that the two of you had? No, I never uh, really thought about my father's military service. And one day he gave a paper, I gave a uh, talk to people that he retired with in the military. And he typed it up. And I remember editing it and retyping it. Back then we didn't have word processors. We did it, he did it in a um, text editor for programming. It became obvious to me that he never told the stories that he had in his paper. He um, never mentioned the war. Never, ever. I've never heard my father ever mention the hardships, the loss of life of friends of his or any of that. And I discovered that people who went through what he went through uh, never talked about their military service because I think they had the mindset that they would never live through it. And so, uh, you know, when I asked him a question about it, he said it was incredible to 
walk from the beaches of Anzio and seeing bodies stacked up 10, 12 feet high on the side of the road, it was just unbelievable that the carnage that took place during war. So uh, he, um, I believe, wouldn't talk about it because of the memories of the past. Yeah, I guess a lot of people feel that way. So can you talk about how your recollection of CH as a businessman and you know, you've touched on this. Did you see that part of him as separate from the role that he played in your life as dad? No, it was kind of at the time. And you got to relate back to the 60s and uh, 70s, but 60s, that parents were focused on uh, their business, focused on providing for their families. And so I really didn't see a lot of difference between my father as a leader of a company or the leader of a family. You know, we would chat. I remember we would, the first time we would uh, really do things together, we would sit up and there's before television and we would listen to uh, the Friday night fights on the radio. That was the big event for the week. And we would do that. And other than that, he was always working in the room in the house that we had on Allen Street in New Iberia. He was always in there drafting a plat or doing calculations, and that's what he did. He worked. Kind of like you. <laughs> I probably don't do the same things he did, but I do a lot of the things to make sure that we're, we're representing a client well and that we're doing, if a client has a problem, then it's our job to solve that problem and making sure that a client is uh, gets what they expect from us. I think his work ethic, though, maybe rubbed off on you a bit. How did CH set the tone and standard for business? I've heard that he could be a bit rigid at times. Do you think that his sort of strictness allowed for a solid foundation to build from? Or did you ever see that as something that you had to work around? Well, first off, because of the way he was, he had a tremendous reputation in the field of surveying. And very few people would deny that. And so it was fairly easy to take that reputation that he had, not screw it up, and move the company forward. We did a lot of things. Uh, we, I think we started doing uh, permitting, environmental permitting, was our first change in from what we did as a company. And we did some engineering work. And we started off with one engineer and and we worked for uh, a couple of different companies or cities. We worked for the city of New Iberia. And, but that was about it. And uh, we had a very, very small group of people in our engineering group. But most we were mostly surveyors. And that's what we did. Okay. I just have it on the top of my mind and I have to have you tell the story and it may be out of step with what we're talking about, but can you tell the story of the briefcase? Well, we, um, <laughs> it's a true story. When my father started the business and got out of, uh, working for Texaco, uh, he was promoted to district engineer and he'd have to travel to Texas and Arkansas. He asked for a briefcase to put his papers in and Texaco sent him a briefcase from a retired landman up in Shreveport that was all torn and tattered. And he bought it to Henry Shoe Shop in New Iberia. And I think the cost was 23 cents to stitch it up and so forth. And Texaco 
would not reimburse you for that expenditure. And so he decided at that particular point in time that probably working for them was not something that would help support a family. So he started his own business. I don't know why I love that story. I think it's just a testament to kind of maybe sort of the foundation of how maybe he took that experience and then starting his own business kind of took a separate notion of really making sure that he was taking care of the people that were taking care of the business. Absolutely. That's true. So 70 years is a really long time to be in business. Can you share some insight as to how our company has shifted, changed, and grown since the departure of our founder? Well, first off, you have to change. If you don't change, then the rest takes care of itself. And so to provide a future for our people, and we're very fortunate. We've had a lot of great people that work here. And uh, you've got to change and you've got to add things. So I always believe that we have to be different than our competitors, because if we're the same as our competitors, then the only thing that separates us is cost. And I wanted to always provide for our people a good work environment, a good place to work. We always want to um, be at the forefront of technology, from uh, printing maps to uh, doing computers and so forth. Uh, I did in the very beginning of my tenure at Fenstermaker, I was in charge of a lot of the technologies that we did and drove a lot of that process. So I love technology. I'm a technology guy. I like change. I think we have to change. If we don't change, then we don't provide opportunity for our people. I think it was Lolly Brasso who told a story that you had gone to some conference in California or something, and you came back and you were saying, and this was decades ago, and you were saying, you know, one day we're going to be talking to our watch or, you know, something like that. And then it all ended up coming to be that we do talk to our watches today. So do you think that's something like that you've always kind of had inside of you as like a passion or like an excitement or an enthusiasm around technology and kind of the future and driving forward? Well, part of my job here is to predict the future. And uh, I believe that we have to adapt to technology. We have to know what it can do and what it can do to enhance our business and serve our clients. So, um, yeah, I think that I don't remember the conversation with Lolly <laughs> Brasso, but uh, if he said that's the case, I probably did. I don't think a lot of people really understood sometimes of where we were going. I think as the time went on, I think uh, I did a better job of articulating our direction. And, you know, if I was in the very beginning writing uh, Kogo-type programs for surveying, for drafting. And that was an experience amongst itself. And so it was fun. I think we caught the attention of a lot of the computer companies, IBM, Sun Microsystems, Hewlett Packard, all those companies knew that we were at the forefront of technology. And that was nice that they recognized us for our efforts there. You've come a long way from, what'd you say, Kogo? Coordinate geometry. Everything we do in the placement of lines of the Surveying is coordinate geometry. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you got to remember back at the time of uh, the 60s and 70s and early 80s that computers didn't have the power they have today. And even a computer screen didn't have the pixels resolution to be able to even see what we were talking about. I, I don't know if it was my father that started me on this path of being able to do calculations using uh, coordinate geometry versus using 
filtered line segments and things of that nature. But it was a good journey, and it was something that we accomplished. And it's something that today sets us apart from a lot of people and how we do a lot of our surveying. I know a lot of things have changed. I was actually in the library over in the survey building, if it was yesterday or day before yesterday, and looking for some of granddaddy's plat work. I was looking for his stamp or you know his signature on something and came across all these hand-drawn things. And Danielle put it on the, the light table and illuminated it. And the fact that they drew all these marshes and everything, they drew all that by hand. It's just amazing how far we've come since then. So, but as much as things have changed, I'm sure some things have endured and withstood the test of time. So can you talk a little bit about how you see your father's legacy lingering in our business and culture today? Well, it wasn't just my father. We had a a number of people that uh, participated in my education. We had a a gentleman by the name of Simonette Miguez, Ray Miguez, who was uh, the consummate surveyor. And he was tough at times, but he was one that would, uh, uh, when you messed up or you did something not right, he would probably yell at you. And then next thing you know, he just wanted to be your best friend. But he was uh, a guy that would pick me up every morning at 6 o'clock and He couldn't wait till the sun came up in the morning. The problem with him was that you'd go out in the field and survey, and it was getting dark, and he was still out there surveying. And you'd go, "Wait, when when are we going to call it a quits for the day? And But he loved it so much. I used to really worry that I'd oversleep, and I'd hear his his truck outside picking me up. That was before, I guess, I must have been 15, 16 years old. You didn't want to disappoint him because the man was uh, incredible as far as uh, the way he— he treated the people that work with him. And also, I remember he always maintained a relationship with everybody along the way, along the highways. And you go into a restaurant, everybody say, hey, Ray, how you been? So he would talk to people, and he really did enjoy his profession, and he enjoyed uh, work every day. And I think I got a lot of that from him. My father, at the same time, was uh, one that said that he never wanted me to have necessarily an easy day. In fact, if anybody ever thought that I had it made or I had it easy, uh, I would always offer to switch places with them on a survey crew because uh, that wasn't the case. If he thought that I had gone on a real easy job or something, got in early, he would always make a point to tell Ray Miguez that he saw me early and that obviously I wasn't on the type of job that he wanted me on. So uh, he taught me a work ethic. He taught me that you don't cut corners, that you do everything the right way. That was very important. He also believed in if you made a mistake or an error, that you owned up to it and that you, you worked hard to correct it. So uh, you didn't hide errors. You didn't hide things. And so he was a good influence on me and on a lot of people. You hear stories from people around about having encounters with him in, in different ways. And I know... Whenever I interview RJ, he'll maybe he'll share some things, maybe he'll keep some things to himself. But I think he was, he left him his mark. Like anyone that he met, he made an impression on. He did. I never forget. He had an opinion. He'd draw an opinion. And it seemed like every time he'd go by RJ's office, RJ was peeling an orange or something, and he <laughs> wanted to know what he was doing. 
And uh, I said, Dad, <laughs> that only happens probably five minutes in the morning, and then he eats orange and he goes about his business. He could be critical of people. He could be critical if someone came in the office with their hat on. He would want them to remove that hat because he didn't believe that you should wear a hat indoors. It was disrespectful. He always was one to uh, to make sure that what we did for a client was uh, above and beyond what they expected. And that's how we built the reputation that you said that you were able to launch from. When somebody has a reputation like he did, it makes it a lot very easy to continue it and try to continue it. So uh, the worst thing in the world for me, even today, would be to screw up our reputation for being uh, known as a firm that delivers quality work. I don't know if it was Warren Buffett or someone who said, you know, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. Well, that could be the case. And I'm sure that we're not perfect, that we've made uh, little mistakes along the way sometimes, but it's how we deal with them. And I always looked at it as if uh, we had a client that wasn't 100% happy with something. A lot of times it wasn't because of anything we did. It's just because their expectations or knowledge of what we were doing wasn't there. But that's an opportunity to uh, educate a client or inform a client. It's an opportunity to uh, actually to make a, a client for life. So, you know, now you can't, you don't have too many chances to do that. But sometimes you do have, you can treat that as an opportunity. So shifting gears just a little bit, I'd like to talk about your career here at Finstermaker, which we heard a little bit about from your adventures with Ray Miguez. Your career began in the field. So what kind of impact did that have on you? And how did that early experience influence what you've been able to achieve since? You know, back then, we didn't have the four-wheelers. We didn't have the, uh, the necessarily the boats we have today. And in fact, at one time, we had a bunch of four-wheelers in front. And I said, you guys don't walk anymore. You know, I mean, what's wrong with y'all? We've walked, uh, used to, I've been across the basin two or three times. And, you know, I think I've walked in everybody's shoes. I understand the predicament that they're, they face every day in the field. I understand what a hot day feels like. I understand what a cold day feels like. I remember going down there in the coastal canal, and it was freezing cold. The question is, do you want to freeze quickly or you want to freeze over a long period of time? And you adjust the throttle accordingly. The challenges that we have in the field operations are, are still the same as they were before, except we probably have fewer people. We do things a little differently with satellite positioning than we did before with chains and the way we used to measure distances. So, you know, things have evolved, and we try to evolve with science and the way it goes and and try to make sure that uh, our people are brought along for the journey. Do you feel like if you hadn't had those that start in the field – in the elements and things like that, do you feel like you wouldn't have as good, I mean, perhaps this is obvious, but you wouldn't have as good of an understanding or ability to lead an organization of people who are facing those challenges? Do you feel like because of it, you have a better understanding and like, I don't know exactly what I'm asking. Well, I always like to sit on the same side of the table as our people. I don't like to sit on the other side of the table. I'm no better than anybody that works here, and I firmly believe that. I want all our people to be successful, 
The question is, why in the world would anybody want their people not to be successful? That'd be pretty stupid. So the thing is, we do have work to do. We do have to create a quality product. We do have to care. And somebody asked me, I think one of the interns asked me, how is it that everybody is the way they are? And I said, because we all care. It's important. I truly care about an outcome of a project for a client. If we somehow don't do what we were supposed to do, my God, that's a horrible thing, and we'll fix it if we can. And so we hope that we satisfy all our clients, and that's what we work for. I guess my thing is is I'm just picturing like if a CEO or a business leader or someone who comes in from a different realm, and they come in and they're trying to lead an organization where they don't necessarily understand the inner workings or haven't stepped in all the shoes do you think it's important i'm almost thinking about that that silly kind of tv show where it's like the ceo steps down and does some of the other jobs within the organization gets their hands dirty a little bit and then they always kind of seem to have a revelatory a revelation of sorts that oh they return to their position and and then they have a better respect for their people Do you feel like the way that you started, it just cultivated that respect for everyone in the company, for everyone's position and the the piece of the puzzle that everyone is? Well, the respect is there. I kind of feel like I've done most of the things that uh, people do here, and uh, I understand what it takes to do it. I think that's important. So the idea that maybe I surveyed from a young age, I remember uh, going all over the Louisiana and outside in Texas and so forth. I remember what it's like to be out there. And so uh, that helps me understand more, understand our people, understand the challenges, and uh, and want to make sure that if I can mitigate some of the things that are the, the harsh things or the negative things, if I can try to mitigate that, I'll do it. And so we try to uh, make sure that uh, our people, our clients are t- taken care of, and and that we, along the way we we do the work at, that we are assigned to do and we expected to do. So maybe this is a fun question, I and mean, this one actually comes from your brother, my uncle John. Who do you remember most from your time in the field? Who left the biggest impression on you? I think I told you by Simon and Migas, Ray Migas. <laughs> and let me say this: that Ray <laughs> was a a perfectionist in surveying. And I can remember sometimes that uh, I remember going offshore once and taking the schematic that uh, one of the companies that designed a rig layout and uh, had surveyed in a couple of points on the rig and then was and he came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just filling out the field book and whatever. And he says, but you don't know that. And I said, Ray, <laughs> Look, these people built a multi-million dollar platform off this plan. And so uh, I kind of think, and he said, pal, I am not going to certify anything unless I'm sure that that's what was there. So, And I remember it was cold. I remember the seas were real bad. They were like 20-foot seas. I remember the crane was gone. So I said, okay, Ray, we'll go, I'll go out there, and we're going to survey. I'm going to measure every part of that platform. And he didn't say no. So I got on a, a crew boat and went with one person and went out there and we measured every part of that platform. And I came back and it was freezing cold. My hands finally recovered from being uh, frozen. And 
Ray was right. Uh, the plan was wrong. That's wild. It was a lesson I learned that, and it's the same thing in doing you did calculations by hand. If you know the answer, you want to know the answer, you might come up to the wrong answer. You come up to that answer, and that's not the real answer. Uh, mathematics is uh, something that's fairly precise, but you can really mess up by trying to have a preconceived notion because you can always make it, you can make it come out to be what you want it to be and not what reality is. So that was a lesson I think I learned, and I'll always remember that. It shocked me that the plan was wrong, but what, what it was is they, uh, the plan that they had in there was not for that platform, it was for another one. Ah, well, I guess it, I mean, it left an impression on you. That experience left an impression on you, and it. You know, it's smart. the same thing as uh, Murphy's Law. We talk about Murphy's Law all the time, and I remember uh, we had back in the day these auto tapes, and we would do trilateration to put a rig on, and the Earth is truly round. I, I can prove that, but at 13 miles, you can't see over the horizon; it drops off. I remember dropping a buoy from two distances, and dropping this buoy, I mean, barely on the edge of which you could see, the very edge. And the equipment was giving me erratic distances because of the waves would get in the way and then would come back and and so forth. And I remember dropping the buoy and a porpoise came and ate my buoy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And so I heard up and made up another buoy and threw it in, in place because we had this big rig ready to, ready to come on location. Unbelievably, when we surveyed in where the rig was, it was like two feet off to the north and about 16 feet off to the east. It was very acceptable because I, the target that we had to be within was a 100-foot circle. So uh, just lucky. But man, that's Murphy's Law when a porpoise comes and eats your buoy. And Murphy's Law being what can go wrong will, will go, go wrong. wrong. That's right. I know you say that a lot. Yep. I mean, we've talked a lot about your dad and his legacy. So what about you? What impact do you hope that you have had and will continue to have on our culture and business? Well, I guess the thing that I would like is to continue to have outstanding people work here and enjoy their ride, enjoy the presence of being here. I like people. But I always said that not everybody here has to love each other. We have to work together. I would think that my legacy, if you want to call it that, is I would be someone who cared about our people and want them to be the best they could be. That is gets me excited, and that's what drives me to want to be here every day. That's a good answer. I have one final question for you. And this interview has honestly been shorter than I imagined. You've really kept your answers Kind of short and to the point. It's like surprising. Yeah. Because normally you talk a lot. <laughs> normally you talk a lot more. So anyway, in the spirit of Fueled, our podcast name, please tell us what fuels you, what drives you in life. That's a tough question. What drives me? What drives me is to continue to change with what's going on around us, both in the world and elsewhere, in our profession. And also what drives me and what excites me is the people that work here. I talked to a gentleman yesterday who is a two-star general. He mentioned that he is stepping down from his uh, leadership role in a much bigger company. 
big, big company. And he said that uh, the only company he would ever want to go to work for again would be Finstermaker. That made me happy because, again, that comes back to reputation. And this is a great guy. And, and my problem is I would love to hire this person. I don't know what I'd do with him if I hired him, but he's a great person. I have another friend that right now is head of the U.S. Marshal Service in Washington, D.C., he was at Conoco. He was an engineer. He's a lawyer. Outstanding person. He mentioned to me, do you still have a job opening here at Finstermaker? And I told him, no, probably I don't for you. But meaning I'd love to have him. I'd love to have him come on board. The, the issue becomes for his career to be successful, he could do something else and be a lot more successful. I don't think I can provide him with the opportunities that someone else could provide him. And so, you know, and I believe that if, if we have someone here that we cannot satisfy because they are more capable than what we have them doing, and I'm aware of another opportunity that would make them very happy, then I'm going to mention to them, you might go check that out because it's important for everyone to enjoy doing what they do, uh, be happy doing what you do and make a difference. So that's kind of the way I feel. I, I don't own anybody I work with people, and uh, I want the best for everyone that works here. So are you telling me that what fuels you is making a difference for other people? Absolutely. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. I think you care about people. I do care about people. By the way, you asked me what I am. I'm the warrior in chief because I'm a product of the mid-'80s. Every day I look to make sure we have enough money to pay our payroll in two weeks. Uh, which is a lot of money. And uh, not only that, I um, want to make sure that, uh, that we continue to, uh, uh, to be very good at what we do. And every year I have to look at it so we're better this year than we were last year. We ought to be. Why aren't we if we're not? Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, it's close, but we should never be close. We should always be much better than we were a year ago. So anyway, that drives me. That's what drives you. That's what fuels you. Well, I guess that's it. Thank you so much for your time, for spending time with me, with us today. That's it. The end. Very good. Thank you. Thank you.